the early 1800s were full of peril for frontiersmen pressing the western boundary into new territories, into Native American and Mexican lands. The law was improvised as needed and enforced with the barrel of a gun or the business end of a knife. The Nashville Whig, published from 1812 to 1837, called the Bowie Knife one of the most bloody instruments of death known to this present age. The Niles Register, published from 1811 to 1848, said in most of the cities, the Bowie Knife and pistol are daily used as a means of vengeance. In his book, The Bowie Knife, Raymond Thorpe said, the Mississippi Packet, the Bowie Knife, and the Colt Revolver were the three musketeers of pioneering in the New West. James Bowie captured the imagination of people all over the world. His legendary fights are a part of American history. His knife inspired a whole new genre of knife making. The details of Bowie and his knife have been the subject of debate and disagreement among collectors and historians for nearly two centuries. Welcome to the Endless Edge. Thanks for tuning into our flagship podcast, James Bowie, His Life and His Knife. The story of James Bowie is violent and is not appropriate for children. Please listen responsibly. Hi, I'm Alec Chances, and I'm here with my friend Tommy Bose. Hi, Tommy. Hi, Alec. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Tommy and I go way, way back working together as musicians since... Uh, 86, 87. Long time. Many years. Tommy's also a uh, knife lover. Absolutely. So Tommy's going to help, help us with the uh, Bowie podcast. And actually, I just said it wrong again. It's Bowie. Yeah, it's Bowie. <laughs> took me a little while to get it together. Well, that controversy has been around for a long time. Yeah, well, you know, I went on a couple of knife forums and asked people. I had about 100 answers, and some were from Texas. Uh, one guy answered that lives in Bowie, Texas, and he said, yeah, it's Bowie. So we're going to say Bowie correctly. And on that note, I'm going to turn it over to Tommy. In Knives 88, the eighth issue of Ken Warner's annual publication, you'll find the article Bowie and Black, Fiction or Fact, written by B.R. Hughes. Hughes states that he has finally convinced himself that Black made the original Bowie knife. He bases his decision on newspaper articles written in the time of Bowie and on things Black himself said. Though the articles might be convincing, they are all either hearsay or they are based on things Black himself claimed. From what I've learned by doing the research for this podcast, I've become convinced that the article in Knives 88 is mistaken. Let's dig in and unearth how I came to that conclusion. The wildly popular Shakespearean actor Edwin Forrest lived from 1806 to 1872. He was also a collector of weapons. He was loved by regular folk of the day, drew large crowds that cheered for him like he was a rock star. Forrest was also known for getting into public fights and arguments. 
In May 1849, Forrest was performing at the Broadway Theater in Midtown Manhattan. At the same time, the most popular British actor of the day, Forrest's chief rival, William Charles McCready, was performing Macbeth at the Astor Place Theater downtown. McCready's audiences were more high society, and Forrest's fans more blue-collar. You could feel the tension in the air, not just between the two actors, but between their fans as well. For the May 7th show, Forrest's fans bought out all the tickets for McCready's Macbeth, and during the performance, they began ripping up seats, throwing rotten eggs, throwing garbage, spoiled food, and oyster shells at McCready on stage. This continued for a few shows as the rivalry worsened over the next few days. By May 10, 1849, tension got so thick that the New York City mayor stationed a militia in Washington Square Park, a few blocks west of Astor Place Theater. The tension exploded when 10,000 fans of both actors began fighting in the streets. When it reached the level of a riot, the militia began firing shots, and by the time it was over, there were 23 dead and countless people injured. Edwin Forrest had a world-renowned weapons collection. He had custom arms made for him, oversized arms made for his performances. He had weapons that belonged to royalty and weapons given to him by military officers from all over the world. James Bowie had seen Edwin Forrest perform in New Orleans and met and spoke with him. Bowie later decided to send Forrest the knife that he used in the famed Vidalia sandbar fight. In the letter Bowie sent along with the knife, he wrote it was, the famous knife that all the newspapers were excited about. Bowie also wrote that he thought the actor might want to add it to his arms collection. Bowie's knife eventually found its way into a display cabinet in Edwin Forrest's giant home in Philadelphia. After Forrest's death, the cabinet was sealed and was believed to have been destroyed in a fire. Noted Bowie knife collector William R. Williamson of California learned that the display cabinet had not been destroyed by the fire at Forrest's mansion and was still intact. Forrest's heirs were currently liquidating his arms collection. Though museums had acquired most of it, Williamson was able to buy Bowie's knife. Williamson contacted Bernard Levine, a renowned cutlery expert and the author of many knife books and articles. He told Levine the story of acquiring the original Bowie knife. Levine tells us it is a large knife whose handles are held on by three rivets. It does not look professionally made. This is in line with the description told by the Bowie family other than minor size discrepancies. Resin Bowie describes the blade as nine and a quarter inches long and one and a half inches wide with a single edge. If you want to see the knife, there are photos of it in the December 1993 issue of Blade magazine. Resin wrote that he had made the first Bowie knife. 
Bowie family members, however, caution us to be skeptical of Rezin's claim to have actually made the knife, suggesting that we should think of it as Rezin having commissioned the knife rather than smithing it himself. If Rezin did have the knife made for him, it was probably made by his neighbor, Jesse Clift, who sometimes worked for the Bowies. Clift would have forged the blade in his blacksmith shop in Marksville, Louisiana. James Black also claimed to have made the original Bowie knife. Before losing his eyesight in 1839 from a beating his stepfather gave him, James Black had forged lots of knives. He even made one for James Bowie himself. But we'll get back to that a little bit later on. As settlers pressed the frontier westward, primitive hunting and trapping conditions, along with the ever-present danger of being raided by Native Americans, made having a large knife close at hand a necessity. Carving and kitchen knives were often fitted with a sheath, but plenty of homemade knives were also made. From the 1958 book, American Knives, a typical knife made by a backwoodsman was simple and sturdy. Sometimes the blade was roughly forged by a local blacksmith. Sometimes it was ground out of an old file. The handle might be fashioned from wood, but one of the most popular materials was deer antler. Handmade knives in the 1800s differ very little from knives made in the 1700s, making it generally impossible to tell an 18th century knife from one made 100 years later. Early guns could only fire one shot at a time. Even if you carried a pair of guns, you still had only two shots before you had to reach for your trusty knife. Frontiersmen, settlers, gamblers, politicians, and trappers all wore a knife. The book American Knives tells us, the well-equipped gentleman carried a pistol in his pocket and a knife beneath his coattails. Such were the times that James Bowie lived in. James Bowie was believed to have been born in Logan County, Kentucky on April 10th, 1796. He stood about six feet tall, one book I looked at described Bowie as generous and gentlemanly. It described Bowie's decision to move to Texas as having been made casually and paints Bowie in a kinder light than he really deserved. A deeper dive turns up that Bowie moved to Texas in the late 1820s to flee the law. His land deals had been investigated and were found to be largely fraudulent. Bowie moved to Texas to escape the consequences. He married there and was granted provisional citizenship by the Mexican government in 1830. Despite dishonest land speculation and some shady slave trading, Bowie prospered and grew a sizable fortune that also included building a lumber business. It's tempting to glorify Bowie into something he was not. Many accounts do. But getting shot, stabbed, and surviving shows toughness, but not character. Bowie was a frontiersman's Rasputin, hard to kill, ornery, and known to have a nasty temper. Before we delve into his fights, it need be said 
that we should not allow ourselves to be seduced into seeing Bowie as a superhero. Though he may have had moments of being gentlemanly and generous, Bowie was a murderous bad guy. The romance of history has turned the story of James Bowie into the legend of James Bowie. That legend spread like wildfire after the Vidalia Sandbar Fight, sometimes called just the Sandbar Fight. But James Bowie, his knife, and his fights not only predate cell phone cameras, they even predate photography. So what details can we be sure of? The most dependable information we have is what has been told to us by his brother, Rezin P. Bowie, and what we've learned from eyewitness accounts. The Sandbar fight was in Natchez, Mississippi, on the bank of the Mississippi River. The rivalry that brought Bowie to the Vidalia Sandbar on September 19, 1827, grew after Major Norris Wright shot Bowie while he was unarmed. That is why Rezin thought that his brother should have a knife with him at the interview, which was what they called a duel back then. Rezin gave his brother James a knife he had designed. James Bowie attended the interview on that sandbar to settle an affair of honor with the man that had earlier shot him. Had there been video cameras back then, the videos would have been tough to watch and certainly too bloody to show on television. At the interview on the sandbar, Bowie was shot in the hip then stabbed in his chest with a sword cane. He managed to get up and kill Wright with his knife. After Bowie killed Major Wright, Alfred Blanchard shot Bowie again. Stabbed, shot, and bleeding, Bowie went to attack Blanchard with his knife, but Blanchard turned tail and ran away. Infamous Natchez gambler John Sturdivant had cheated the son of one of Bowie's friends. In 1829, Sturdivant faced off with Bowie. They began their battle with their left wrists tied together by a scarf. Sturdivant went to attack Bowie first. Bowie blocked his attack, and using the knife that Rezin had given him, Bowie cut the tendons on Sturdivant's knife arm, leaving him unable to fight. In a rather magnanimous moment, Bowie decided to let him live. Blacksmith James Black boasted that he had improved on Bowie's original knife. He claimed that he was actually the inventor of the Bowie knife. As far as we can tell, Bowie had the knife made larger than his brother Rezin's original design. James Black may have also added the clip point, but there is no way to know if this is true or if it was just Black's braggadocio. Not long after Bowie got his new knife, word of an impending fight began to spread. Despite Bowie having spared his life, Sturdivant had not forgiven Bowie. Sturdivant paid three desperados to ambush Bowie on his way back to Texas. They caught him by surprise. One stabbed Bowie in the leg. Using his heftier modified new knife, Bowie cut that attacker's head off. Still bleeding from his leg, Bowie got off his horse 
and disemboweled the second assailant. The third one turned and tried to run away. Bowie chased him down and split his head in two. It's gross and violent, but those details fed the growing legend. Consider the lawless conditions around the country back then. There were fights in bars, fights in gambling places, fights on riverboats, fights in the street, there were murders. People settled arguments violently. Men fought to avenge their bruised honor. All were settled with knives and all were written up in local newspapers. In the mid-1800s, as our divided country headed towards a civil war, there were fistfights and brawls, some even in Congress. In 1860, John Fox Potter, a new representative from Wisconsin, got in a fight in the aisle and took the wig of the representative from Mississippi, who returned by giving him a black eye. Friends calmed down the fight, but another fight soon followed. On April 8, 1860, Roger A. Pryor of Virginia and some of his southern friends attempted to muzzle Owen Lovejoy from Illinois as he spoke out against slavery. Potter stood in defense of Lovejoy, and it got so heated that the sergeant-at-arms had to separate the two groups. When the official record was released, it stated that Potter had shouted, This side shall be heard. Let the consequences be what they may. Pryor accused the Wisconsin representative of having written the statement and inserting it into the record. They argued and a duel was proposed. He accepted the challenge, saying he'd be glad to oblige Pryor if he'd agree to a specific set of conditions. Potter said he would be happy to meet Pryor in a closed room with bowie knives of equal weight and equal blade lengths. He basically wanted a cage match with knives. He said the fight would continue until one of them fell, taunting that he would carve Pryor up so skillfully as to remove his desire forever to fight. Pryor learned about those terms much later. His aides had already declined on his behalf, calling the proposal barbarous and ungentlemanly. Even though a duel had been averted, newspapers around the country printed the story and Potter became known nationally. Republicans saw him as a hero, and Democrats called him a bragging fool. Folks from all over the country began sending him knives. Republicans from the state of Missouri had a seven-foot-long knife inscribed and sent it to him. The inscription, a play on Pryor's name, read, I will always keep a Pryor engagement. For the rest of his life, he was known as Bowie Knife Potter. Even 30 years after the Bowie knife first appeared, the Potter story foreshadows nearly 200 years of interest and fascination with Bowie and his knife. Early newspaper accounts reflected the public's interest in the bloody details of knife fights, but it eventually reached a point that the public had had enough violence and began to push back against it. Between 1837 and 1839, Tennessee, Alabama, and Mississippi all passed strict laws about the use, transfer, and public handling of the big knives. In 1838, the Tennessee legislature passed an act to suppress the sale and use of Bowie knives and Arkansas toothpicks. 
saying that if any person that shall wear any Bowie knife, Arkansas toothpick, or keep the same concealed about his person, shall be guilty of a misdemeanor and imprisoned in the county jail not less than three months. Despite this, the buoy held its appeal and was carried just as universally as it had been before. Since the first one filled a scabbard, the Bowie knife has gone from an item as commonly worn as shoes to a collected prize. It's remarkable that a knife named after a person would carry that name for nearly two centuries and still be popular. I can't think of another tool or knife that has that distinction. If you've enjoyed today's podcast and you'd like to leave a tip and help support The Endless Edge, you can do so at paypal.me forward slash The Endless Edge. No spaces. Once again, go to paypal.me forward slash The Endless Edge. Thanks to Brad Lockwood, Jan Carter at iKnifeCollector.com. Thanks to Gus Marsh. Thanks, Bruce Miller, for your great audio advice. And special thanks to Tommy Bose. James Bowie, His Life and His Knife, was written, produced, recorded, and engineered by Alec Chances. Narration by Alec Chances, with a guest voiceover by the great Tommy Bose. All music was written and produced by Alec Chances, copyright 2023. Audio consulting by Bruce A. Miller. The books used researching James Bowie, His Life and His Knife, were Sheffield Exhibition Knives, The Sword and Knife Makers of Germany, 1850-2000, The London Knife Book, 1820-1945, Ken Warner's Knives 81 and Knives 88, Levine's Guide to Knives and Their Values, 3rd and 5th editions, American Knives, The First History and Collector's Guide, The Bowie Knife by Raymond Thorpe, The Nashville Wig, published from 1812 to 1837, The Niles Register, published from 1811 to 1848, Blade Magazine's Spring 1990 special issue on buoys, and Goins Encyclopedia of Cutlery Markings. We'd love to hear from you and add you to our mailing list. Send us an email at theendlessedge, one word, at hotmail.com. That's theendlessedge at hotmail.com. Well, that about does it for us today. Thanks to all of you for listening in to The Endless Edge.